I'm glad you're here with us this morning. Very excited about this text. Got a long way to go and a very short time to get there. Um, so just grab on, grab a pen, grab a piece of paper, and, and let's rock and roll. Um, in, in 1986, a guy named Robert Munch published a book. Um, if you've never heard this book before, it's going to be on the screen. It's called Love You Forever. You guys heard of this book? A lot of people heard of this book? Okay. If you haven't, it's a classic. It's an instant classic. Um, I'm going to give you a quick overview of it real quick. And it, it is a... It is a well, you'll see. Um, this is the book. The, the book begins with uh, this lady who has an infant. The infant's perfect. Um, after that, the infant grows up into a toddler. The toddler becomes messy, um, pulls things off the shelves, all this kind of stuff. The toddler then grows into an elementary school kid, and if you have read the book, begins to say bad words at his grandmother's house, and he's just nasty and disrespectful. Um, he, that child then grows on into another child uh, who becomes a toddler who wears weird clothes and has weird friends and weird likes. And then that child uh, grows into a, 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 an older man. This is where the story, I'll just be quite honest with you, gets fairly creepy. Um, the mom has been crawling into the room on her knees the whole time at night and picking up the child. So much so that when he becomes a full-grown man and moves out to his own house... She climbs a window and picks him up in the middle of the night. <laughs> okay, so clearly mommy has boundary issues. Um, she also needs to see a therapist really quick. And let's be honest, the son just needs to learn how to lock his window, right? Uh, so that happens. But the whole time, he, she keeps saying and rocking him, saying, I love you forever, I'll like you for always, as long as I'm living, my mommy you'll be. She gets old and she gets sick, and this is where it takes a, a, a sharp turn in the story where the man then comes into the home, picks up his mother, begins to rock her, says this back to her. You don't really know what happens. The illusion is that the mommy is no more, but then the dad has his own daughter, and he leaves the room, and then he goes and picks up his daughter, and then he begins the whole cycle over again. I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always, as long as you're living my baby you'll be. Crazy story. And in this story, I'll be honest with you, it it is creepy. There's some creepy parts of it. Yes, this family definitely needs an intervention. (laughs) They need somebody to come in and go, hey, we're not quite right if we're creeping in each other's rooms and, and windows. But the heartstring moment of this is truly countercultural. And the whole theme behind this book is why it grabbed the heartstrings of an entire generation. Because the question after you read it is something along the the lines of this. Could this type, radical love, insistent persistence, unconditional presence, truly exist? Like, could that really exist? And that's why the book is to this day a continued bestseller. We want to know that. Like, does that really exist? Not just in story form, but is there that type of love for me? Is there that type of cuddling for me? And if you're thinking about your mom climbing now into your window, you're welcome. You can think through that for the rest of the day. But nonetheless, this is where we're at in Genesis 25 and 26. I hope you have that in your brain Just wondering, could that type of persistent love really exist? And here's the journey we've been going through in the graph. The book of Genesis, if you're new to Safe Haven Church, we just go straight through books of the Bible. Um, We've been all the way through the four major events of Genesis. Now we're going through the four major people of Genesis. We've already been through Abraham. And we've hit Isaac. And and we're beginning to ask that question, is God eventually just going to give up on these people? I mean... After uh, Adam and Eve and then Cain and then Abel and then the whole Sodom thing and Lot and the wife and just the people are a mess. And it leaves us wondering, surely, surely at some point God's grace is going to run out. Surely at some point he's going to be so furious and his love is no longer going to pick him up and say, I love you forever, I, I like you for always. Does God's Relentless love truly exists, Genesis 25 and 26. God's presence was all over Abraham. Will it also be all over Isaac? 
was relentless with Abraham, will it be relentless with Isaac is where we find ourselves. And we're going to look at a couple of ways in which this kind of plays out through this story. Let's look at through this together. First question, does God relentlessly loving, uh, does that type presence remain even in the midst of a divided family? You see, it's going to be an ethereal question about God's love, but it's going to be super practical as we go through this. Could that type of love exist even in a divided, messed up family? We'll find this and we pick back up in chapter 25, verse 24, where we ended last week. So when Rebecca, this is Isaac's wife, if, if you're new to the journey with us, go listen to all the messages before, but if you're new, Isaac had a wife, her name was Rebecca. Uh, she has these kids. We're just told that the older uh, will be um, uh, the one that's serving the younger. It's, it's going to be this crazy womb battle in the womb. God's creating two nations out of these kids that are inside her. So when Rebecca, her days were uh, complete to give birth, that's where we pick back up. Behold, there are twins in her womb. The first came out. All his body was like a hairy cloak. So they named him Esau. Like, that's the story. So I guess if you're hairy, you should be Esau. Um, Verse 26 says this, Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, or heel holder. Isaac was 60 years old when uh, she, Rebecca, bore them. And when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau... Because he ate of his game, but Rebecca loved Jacob. Whacked out, divided, messed up family right off of the bat. We get the characteristics of these people right, uh, right out of the gate. So let's kind of look at their characteristics. So Esau, is a, he's a daddy's boy. I guess we could call him a, you know, he's a man's man. He's the stereotypical jock of all jocks. He is strong. He's Physical, but he's also reckless. He's also uncalculated. He's testosterone-laced. In the Hebrew, it said he has red hair all over him. Uh, He's like some of you guys who are hunters in this room who get your clothes and stuff them in a box with pine straw and pour deer urine on them. This is this type guy. He's just a manly man. He's an alpha male. He likes to fight. He drives a truck. He shops in woods and water. He listens to Metallica. Like, this is who this guy is. He's, he's, a, he's a roughneck. All right, so we get the picture of this guy. We also get the picture of Jacob. Jacob is not a daddy's boy. He's a mommy's boy. He's the stereotypical CEO, I guess you would say. He is controlled. He's wise. But he's also manipulative, manipulative for the sake of productivity. If I have to produce, I'll manipulate the whole situation just so that I can produce. He's very calculated. He doesn't love to shop at Woods and Water. He prefers Bed Bath & Beyond. He doesn't drive a truck. He drives a Prius. (laughs) He's he's into, um, not Metallica, but Taylor Swift. He's organized. He's calculated. I want to be careful to also not call him a beta male. If, Al, if, 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 if Esau is an alpha male, I don't want to say he's a beta male because even in the womb, he's grabbing at the heel as if to pull his brother back. So it's not that he's a, a, a weak, mamby-pamby, wishy-washy, you know, whatever. It's, it's just that he's always trying to manipulate from behind rather than just to lead out front. Okay, so this is who this guy is. The verses go on to tell us this, that one day they're out in the field. Esau's in the field, he's, he's hunting, he's playing, he's doing whatever. Jacob is inside cooking, he's, he's just watched Martha Stewart, so he's got a good recipe, he's going to try it out. <clears throat> and Esau comes in. Now, he's a hungry, teenage, warrior man-child. <clears throat> and as you know, if you've ever been a hungry, warrior, teenage man-child, they eat like goats. I mean, our boys, <laughs> you know, we come home from the store... And, you know, they can't even eat, pop open the Chex Mix thing to grab a handful of Chex Mix. They just gnaw through the plastic. It's like you can't eat the can of SpaghettiOs, at least open. They're just, this is what's going on. He's really hungry. He, he comes in and he says this, I'm about to die. 
Jacob, I'm about to die and you've got some stew over there. Well, newsflash, if you have the energy to walk into a house and proclaim you're about to die, you're probably not about to die. So it's just this flippant moment. He's, he's wishy-washy in, 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 his, in his thoughts about what's going on in, in his life and that's going to play itself out in a second. Jacob, calculated, is thinking about the birthright. Esau is the firstborn. He has the right to the birthright. He also has the right to the blessing. He's not thinking about the birthright or blessing at all. However, Jacob is, who's in there cooking. And he's, maybe he's just got a lot of time to think about different things. And as he's, as he's thinking, here's what the birthright and the blessing is. The birthright was given to the firstborn child, which meant that you got a double inheritance um, if... If, if we had a house and a car and a motorcycle, you got the house and the car, and then the younger one got the motorcycle. Okay, So as the older, he was entitled to this, but he was also entitled to a very spiritual blessing, meaning that you were the head of the household. And as the head of the household, you, you bore all the rights to lead the family. And in this time, God's presence was promised to be on the oldest who held the birthright. Catch that. Esau, warrior child, flip it, could care less about God's intended purpose as a firstborn child. As we know, God's intended purpose was actually to spin it and to do something else with the younger child. But this is the playing out of God's elective purposes. This is election. In a nutshell, the doctrine of election. God just simply chose, without explanation, without apology to flip the whole system and to say, I'm going to orchestrate things in this younger one's life so that he is Lord over the older one. The older will serve the younger. So this is how it all plays out over a pot of stew, over just some food in his belly. And so it plays out. Esau despises his birthright. So we saw the natural characteristics, this warrior, Metallica guy, this... Um, again, I can't think of a a better person than Taylor Swift, you know, whatever. They're at odds with one another, but now we see the spiritual characteristics. We see one who's thinking on things of the Lord. Now, he's still a mess. Jacob is still a royal mess, but he's actually thinking about things of the Lord. So, Esau could care less. He just wanted to feed his cravings. He wanted to do anything that he wanted to do, and he wanted to do it now. He wanted to do it instantly. His motto was, you only live once, so just do it big and do it now. So for him, he was impatient. He was impulsive. And when we're impatient and when we're impulsive, we rarely are capable of being used by the Lord. He's completely impatient, wants to do what he wants to do, and therefore he has no time to think on things of the Lord. So he's rendered incapable of even worship in this moment. He he was something along these lines, who cares about God's design? Who cares about God's desire? Who, Who cares about spiritual headship? Who cares about the Lord? I just want to hunt. I just want to fish. I just want to ball. I just want a vacation. I just want to do what I want to do. Gets real practical real quick, doesn't it? This is who this person was. I don't care about the money. Just slap it on the credit card because I want it and I want it now. I just want what I want. This is Esau. However, we see also um, Jacob in contrast. Jacob, he earnestly desired this birthright, this blessing. You know, when we're talking to somebody, what comes out in conversation is usually what we've already been thinking about, isn't it? You just went to the beach, so you want to talk about the beach. Your septic tank backs up from the end of your house and floods, you know what, quite literally all the way through your house into a toilet and then through your showers and then it spills out into your floor and then it goes up under your subfloor and then it gets into your carpet and you have to rip it all out. This is all hypothetically, you know. Let's say that might have happened to someone this week. We want to talk about it. I want to get that out. I mean, somebody wants to get that out because there's stuff all over the floor. Well, this is what happens. He comes in, and what is on his mind? He wants to know, how can I 
get that type of the presence of the Lord in my life where I lead spiritually, it comes up in conversation about stew, and instantly what he's been thinking about comes out. He's been thinking about things of the Lord. But again, yes, he is a mess. We'll get to that later next week. But the concept of the spiritual birthright was worthwhile to him. He sought it out. He desired it. It was on the forefront of his mind, so much so that he was not going to barter for a new camel. He was going to barter and use this situation to talk about how can he get this blessing and birthright. So, what we're fixated on instantly comes up conversation. Esau is fixated on things that he wants, and he wants it now. So much so that Hebrews 12, the last thing that's ever said about Esau, is that he was an unholy man, and we're commanded to not be like Esau. This is who we're talking about. All that to say, your crazy family and your crazy relationships are still no match for the presence of God. Despite all their troubles, despite two crazy brothers, let's not let the parents off the hook. Did you catch the favoritism at the very beginning? Y'all caught that, didn't you? Abraham loved Isaac, but the wife loved Esau. It's not just that the kids whack, the parents are whacked. You've got all this craziness going on. So in this moment, um, we're not going to learn a lot about this family from their successes, but we're going to learn a whole lot from their messes. And the point is that God even designed this divided family to display His presence more than if they were not divided. So if you find yourself in the midst of a crazy family, that's still no match for God to use you. It's still no match for God to use your mess. It's still no match for God to use what you think is insane. God can step into that, and His presence is in this. And at times, it may seem reckless and inexplainable and wildly sovereign that God could even use a jacked-up family, someone who despised things of the Lord and someone who loved things of the Lord. It seems crazy that He could do that. But it's true, and it's the reason that he loves you. You're no different than the crazy family. You probably are part of the crazy family. You're probably the reason the family's crazy. And God says, I can use you. And his presence is still in the midst of this. If you struggle with God's elective hand in this moment to choose Jacob over Esau, if you struggle with that, I'll say a couple of things. Number one, reevaluate yourself. You were dead in your sin, and you deserved not to be plucked out unto the presence of the Lord, just like Jacob. And he did it anyway. So reevaluate yourself. If you struggle with God choosing Jacob and not Esau, then reevaluate God as king. He is God as king. Daniel chapter 4 says it this way. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? If you struggle with this, God is wildly sovereign. He can choose. He can use as he wills because he's king. Because he's God. And then number three, reevaluate grace. If you struggle with the fact that God reached down and said, Jacob I loved, Romans chapter 9, Esau I hated. This is what the Bible says. If you struggle with the fact that in the Bible over 25 times the word election is used, that God elects his own purposes. If you struggle with that, reevaluate grace. Grace is not earned Grace is just freely given. If you earn grace, then it's no longer grace. It's not grace at all. And God, in these moments, He he chooses to do this. So does God's love relentlessly remain present, even in the midst of a divided family? Yes. And He's going to continue to use this crazy family. Number two, 
Okay, that may be true, but does God's relentless, loving presence remain even in the midst of lack or lacking or recession? Uh, At this moment, at this time in 2022, you go, I sure hope he does in the middle of a recession. But let's just kind of look at this. So as the story goes on, uh, you've now got um, Isaac and, and you've got this crazy family and they hit a famine. So there's a famine in the land, and the first thing that he does is he goes, well, it's, there's a famine and a recession. Um, taxes are high. Nobody's got any money. We also don't have any water. Um, we, we've got gas prices out the wazoo. Let's go to Egypt. Let's head down to the Nile, because at least there we know we can find water. Right? So famine pops up. He instantly grabs his family. They start heading to the Nile. And so our question would come up is, okay... This whole book, God has been saying, trust me, even in the midst of struggle. So is this mistrust moment? Because he's definitely mistrusting. I don't, I don't trust you, God. I know there's a famine coming, but I've got to take care of this. I've already got this crazy family, so we'll at least have some water. And, and so they head off to the... I'll go take these matters into my own hands. Does that sound oddly familiar for those of you who's been going through Genesis with us? Who else has already done this? His old man. His daddy's already done this. So he didn't learn the lesson from his daddy. Now watch this. Does God's presence remain even though he mistrusts God, even in a family? Does he remain? He does. God so much steps into this moment and goes, Listen, you're not listening to me. You're not trusting me. But here's what I want you to do. Don't go to the Nile. Do not go to the Nile. I'm going to remain with you. Don't go there. And so he tells him, don't go there. He says, I've got land and I've got offspring for you. That too should sound strangely familiar, but he's got to learn this lesson for himself. His dad's already had to learn the lesson that um, uh, God has to be the one to pull this off, and now he's got to learn this lesson. So I think a practical point out of this would simply be something like this. Just because an offer that comes your way includes more money does not mean it's from God. Doesn't mean that always. Now, I have talked to a lot of people throughout the years, and a lot of times you hear something like this along these lines. Well, this must be from God because there's so much more money involved. There was also a lot of water in Egypt. And God goes, don't go there. Do not go there. The question is not whether there's more money there or not. The question is, is God there or not? The question is not, is this going to boost your portfolio out of the roof? The question is, is it going to boost the Lord's presence in your life? And so as we're asking questions along these lines, I think we can learn this from uh, this family, is that God's presence is more important than our portfolio. God's presence is more important than our power. God's presence is far more important than any decision that we're ever going to make on our own. And and so we see this. God goes, listen, you're not trusting me, but I'm going to tell you, don't go because I love you. His presence is still there even when he's mistrusting. And not only does he say that, but he says, stay in this land. Stay in this land as an alien, as a, a person with no rights. Depend on a bunch of pagans to take care of you. You stay here in Gerar. Practical point out of this. Just because something's uncomfortable does not mean that it's not God's will for your life. And we miss out on a lot of the Lord's presence a lot of times because we'll bolt the moment something gets uncomfortable. When sometimes the Lord goes, you just sit right here. It's super uncomfortable. Yeah, stay in Gerar. And we go, but, but I don't want to stay in Gerar. Lord, the Nile is plush. I can put some Hawaiian tropic on. I can lay there and get some of that Egyptian sun glaring off the pyramid. I can do this. And the Lord goes, no, no, no. I, I need you to stay in Gerar. And we'll miss out on the Lord's presence just by bolting. So even in the midst of uncomfortableness, God says, I'm going to remain present If you'll remain in this moment that's uncomfortable. And then finally he says this, Trust my voice, trust my charge, trust my commandments, trust my statutes, trust my laws. In other words, what I'm going to need you to do, Isaac, is I'm going to need you to put on a self-imposed blindness. 
I'm going I'm to need you to quit looking at the things around you and impose a self-imposed blindness and just step by step walk with me. Isn't that hard, church? Isn't it hard to walk step by step with the Lord? Because what do we want to know? We want to know five years from now. We want to know ten years from now. We want to know a month from now. Lord, if you'll just... And we'll get to this in a second. God, if you'll just tell me... Like, if you'll come down and tell me what's going on, then I'll trust you. Uh, you probably won't. Because Isaac didn't here in just a second. But that's a whole other story. But we begin questioning... And God says, listen, I just want you to be obedient. And obedience means step by step, walk with me. Just walk with me. And if you do that, then my presence will be with you. So in other words, our step by step walk should never waver regardless of the assets that we have. In times of plenty, we should walk with the Lord. In times of lacking, we should walk with the Lord. In times of in-between, we should just walk with the Lord. God's relentless love does remain. Even in the midst of those moments that you are lacking. So I don't know if you're in this room and you're like the majority of the population and you're like, okay, my bank account's lacking. (laughs) My tire went flat. Um, My 401k went from whatever to negative whatever. And you're feeling that? The practical application out of this is, what are you focused on? Are you focused on your stuff? Or are you focused on your Savior? And we're called to focus on the Lord, even in the midst of the lacking. So, your season of lacking has no bearing on the presence of God in your life. The question is, are you focused on the presence of God. Number, uh, not, not number three, but some three things that I think come out of this. And I, and I, I want to jump this in there and I'll, I'll quickly go on to the next thing. In moments of lacking, church, please be careful. Here's why I say be careful. Because in moments of lacking, here are three things that I hear from a lot of people. Number one, Troy, I must have done something wrong. I've done something wrong. God's not blessing me. So I I must have done something wrong. Here's what I want to say to you. Number one, you have done a lot of wrong. (laughs) A whole lot of wrong. So which one got you? Right? And we get this weird notion of, I, I I, I don't have this millions of dollars, so I must have done something wrong. Stop. That's the enemy, man. This brother, the Lord's saying, I don't want you to have anything. But it doesn't mean he did anything wrong. Number two, I hear people say this. I must have done something wrong, so therefore, God is punishing me. Oh, church, don't get stuck in that. Things aren't going the way that I think they should go or I thought they should go, so God must be punishing me. Well, the question for you would be this. Well, then was he punishing Christ? Because remember, Christ said this, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has... He don't even have a place to lay his head. So was he punishing Christ in lacking? No. And then also this, is, he, is God punishing the underground church in China who has nothing... And if they, their religion becomes exposed, then they lose even more, if not lose their life. Is God punishing them? Don't fall into that trap of in moments of lacking, God doesn't love me, God doesn't care, God's punishing me. Maybe He just has you in a season of lacking so that you'll grow your faith and love Him and love His presence more than your stuff. Be careful about that. And then number three, I hear people say this. So therefore... I must have done something wrong. God's punishing me and I need to earn God's blessing back. Well, when you say things like that, do you want stuff or do you want the Savior? When you say blessing, what are you talking about? Be careful about that. Why? Because the Lord's presence is the blessing. That's the blessing. And if you're looking for something else, 
then you don't love the Lord. You love the things the Lord can provide. And that's a dangerous place to go, church. So I said that to you out of love. That's why the prosperity gospel is so dangerous. When you hear the prosperity gospel vomit, rebuke that stuff. God's only blessing you if you sow the dollar seed and He'll give you a hundred back. Okay, that's garbage. Okay, I would use other words that's flowing through my septic tank right now, but it is church service, so I won't do that. Okay, it's something like this. You know the Lord's all over you if you've got a Range Rover and a Mastercraft hooked up to it, which may be a blessing of the Lord. Uh, if you've got a Range Rover and a Mastercraft hooked up to it and you're going to spend the weekend at your private lake house, then the Lord's presence is all over you. That is so garbage. That's not real. It's anti-gospel. And it's like 0.1% of the population. So is 99.9% of people not loved of the Lord? Stupid! I'm spitting everywhere. Prosperity gospel will come out of this. And then number two, let's be careful. The poverty gospel also pops up in this. And the poverty gospel is the opposite. No, no, no. If you want the presence of the Lord, then you even got to take the stuff you got and you got to give it away. You got to grow you some dreadlocks. For me, that would be a little hard here. It'd be some funny little dreadlocks. You got to grow you some dreadlocks. Take your shoes off. Eat granola. Give away your car. You know, whatever it is, you got to you got to do smoke hemp. Whatever you got to do, all these things to really prove to the Lord that you know you love Him. Give it all away, and then you'll be blessed. Don't buy into that garbage. Don't buy into the poverty gospel as well. Sometimes the Lord just blesses people with money. And you know what? That's a okay thing. Sometimes there are honest, righteous people who invest their money well, who make a deal on the market, who, who know how to work that whole crazy stock system, who, for whatever reason, God just says, I'm going to prosper them. That's okay. Don't you dare demonize them. So the prosperity gospel or the poverty gospel, we start going there in moments like this, and it's, it's just not about being rich or poor. It's about being righteous, whether you're rich or whether you are poor. That's what we need to learn from this text. Just be righteous. And in this moment, this family finds themselves definitely in a moment to where they are poor. So... <clears throat> Let's don't read into the text, I guess, anger where it's just not there. Um, sometimes God wants you in hard places. And in this moment, he finds himself in a situation of lacking. And so I wrote this down in my notes, and, and, and I'll move on to the next thing after this. Um, it's better to be in a hard place with God's presence than an easy place without God's presence. And I think that's the lesson we learned from this family here. Well, the Lord had just talked to him personally. I just alluded to that to him, uh, just a minute ago. And I hear all the time also, if I could just hear from the Lord personally, then I would really believe him. Um, well, we would think that just hearing from the Lord personally, um, that there would be a spine of steel implanted in this man. Not so much. Uh, will God's relentless loving presence remain even if, after hearing from the Lord, he becomes fearful and frail as a human? So here's where we are in the text as we continue on. Now they have uh, found themselves in Gerar. Um, There is a stunning, stunning young wife. Um, And uh, we've got um, Isaac fearing being killed now. And he's going to pull the exact same stunt that his father had pulled. And in this moment, he becomes fearful. This stunning young wife um, has has not had kids yet, but, but they find themselves here. And fear begins to mix um, with faith. And when fear mixes with faith, it's usually a recipe for failure. And failure is going to pop up here. Uh, Theological beliefs go completely out the window in light of proven actions. And so in this moment, weakness gets the absolute best of him. So, so Isaac uh, pops on the scene. He's there. He's got this wife. What, do I, what am I going to do? She's beautiful. They're going to take her. What should I do? And he becomes a coward. And cowardness is a sin. Uh, so if you don't think that cowardness is a sin, just reevaluate. Um, if we're supposed to be people of faith, 
who believe in the promises of the Lord, then cowardness in and of itself is a sin. We're, we're not to be people of faith. I mean, we are to be people of faith. We're not to be people of fear. And so fear gets the best of him. He's afraid to stand for truth. He's afraid to go, yes, this is my bride. So he takes it into his own hands. He, he fails again by being selfish. This man is willing to betray his wife to save himself. So he's selfish in this moment. And then he's faithless again. He doesn't believe that God's going to come through. And so his stated theological beliefs are, God, I believe you are everywhere except for here. God, I believe you are all-powerful except over this situation. God, I believe you are all-knowing, but I don't think you know what's going on here, so I've got to figure this out. And in this moment, his failure gets him with fear. So surely, surely the presence of the Lord is going to leave him because he's fearful and frail. Surely this will cause the Lord to leave. It'll cause the Lord to look down and go, you are truly a pathetic family. I've got to get out of here and go to somebody else. Surely the presence of the Lord will leave him. But what we're going to see is when fearful covenant children are failures, God remains faithful even in this moment. Watch what divine, grace-filled, miraculous moment occurs. So God lets Abimelech look out and see them laughing together. Now, what's going on here is not laughing at all. So remember, Isaac had just said, Hey, Rebecca, this is my sister. <laughs> I don't want you to kill me. He doesn't say that out loud. This is my sister. And so things kind of go on. So Abimelech's up in a room, and they're sitting down, and, and they're laughing together. But again, this word is definitely not laughing. Um, what old Abimelech looks out and sees is caressing and cuddling. And this brother in this moment kind of looks down and goes, What kind of <laughs> redneck, hillbilly, Alabama family is this? What is this going on? This is twisted. And, and so he looks out, and, and he sees this, but... It's also at this moment where God in His sovereignty and in His presence lets the unbeliever be more moral than the believer. And in this moment, God's presence still comes in even in the midst of failure and giving up and going, hey, I'll take this on my own. Even in the midst of that, He goes, listen, your failure is not bigger than me. I will overcome Abimelech and let him see really what's going on and I will implant faith in Abimelech. I'll let him be the moral one. If you covenant child, if you're not going to be faithful, I'll stick my faith in someone else. And this is what happened. It's crazy. Do y'all see how crazy this is? Or is it just me? And so in this moment, it's scandalous grace. And this unbelieving pagan is all of a sudden used of God. Side note, people always see us out the window. So let's be mindful of whether we're acting like believers or unbelievers. There's somebody always peering out the window. And then side note number two, they're not always as gracious as Abimelech. And that's caught some of us, hasn't it? It's caught you. But in this moment, flip that. Isaac is a covenant child, and he's willing to give Rebekah up and God's promise up to save himself. And Abimelech is a pagan child, and he's willing to protect Rebekah and Isaac and the promise, all at the penalty of death if anyone comes up and tries to stop it. It is a scandalous, grace-filled moment. God's presence remains even in the midst of our unfaithfulness. That's the hope of the gospel. Some of you are going, that can't be right because I've always heard all my life that if I fail at one thing, then God's smile turns upside down into a snarly frown. Church, if you are a blood-bought saint of God, then He looks down and He sees Christ especially in the midst of your failures. And you need to hear that. And so in this moment, I do want to say this before we go on. At Safe Haven, 
we will always proclaim the pursuit of holiness for the children of God in all things. It is our duty to pursue holiness always. And at Safe Haven, we will always proclaim that any sin is an offense to God's holiness and we're at a war against any sin in our lives. Hear me clear. At Safe Haven, we will never say that grace is a license to sin. Never. At Safe Haven, we will always warn you that freely embracing sin and not warring against it is a mark of unbelief. We'll always warn you of that. But hear me clear. At Safe Haven, we will also always remind you, if you're a true believer, of this fact. That God's ability to save you from your sin is greater than your ability to sin. That's the gospel. That's our only hope. That's all we got. Because if you're like me, you're going to have hiccups in your faith the moment you walk right out those doors. Praise the Lord for His scandalous grace. I really got to speed it up. So will God's relentless loving presence remain now in the midst of abundance? Verse 12, Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. This is an understatement. He just went from nothing in the midst of a famine where crops don't grow to now having a hundredfold blessing. That's talking about a turn of events. A turn of events really just happened. And the man became rich and gained more and more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, and the Philistines envied him. So he built an altar in Beersheba, called upon the name of the Lord, pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. So despite this man's crazy family, despite recession, despite fear, despite failure, now even in abundance, what does he do? He builds an altar and begins to worship. Doesn't matter the situation. Step By step, I'll follow you, Lord. That's where he finds himself. And that's the overarching lesson. And us as his servants are commanded to do the same. We worship. And this impacts everybody around him. And that impact extends far beyond he ever dreamed or imagined. Look at this, and this is where we end the text today. And Abimelech, with his people, said this. Again, in the midst of family division, in the midst of recession, in the midst of failure, in the... Abimelech is like, you tried to give your wife away. Even in the midst of that, he says this, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. We see it. In the midst of all of it, we see the Lord's been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let's make a covenant with you. Isn't that the nature of society? Like all of a sudden, the Lord's abundant blessing or provision starts to pop up. And now all of a sudden, you've got more friends than you ever thought you dreamed, you know? <laughs> like, when, everything, when, when the septic was backing up, everyone's like, nah, I don't want to put my hands in your dirt. Because <laughs> there's stuff in your dirt, you know? But, you know, when it's pristine and, and then their septic backs up, they're like, can I come over and use your body? You know, it's like the Lord's blessing and now everybody shows up and they want to pack with them now. Okay, I'll keep going. Verse 29. Uh, don't do any harm to us. Just if we've not touched you and have done nothing but good to you and have sent you away in peace, you are now the blessed of the Lord. So what did he do? He said, you sorry punks, you all of a sudden want to be my friends? Is that what he says? No. He cooks a feast. He says, come on. If the Lord's presence is with me, I'm going to bless it on to you. He makes them a feast. They ate, they drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We found water. And so he called it Shabbat. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. So all that to say, maybe, just maybe, all of these stories about Isaac are not about Isaac at all. Maybe all of this happened in Isaac's life so that Abimelech would see what it meant to be a person of faith. Maybe your divided family is not about your divided family at all, but who's watching how you respond in your divided family. Maybe your season of lacking is not about your lack at all, 
but how will you respond in your season of lacking? Maybe your failure is not even about your failure at all. Maybe it's about somebody who's watching to see how you'll respond in the midst of your failure. And maybe your abundance, because let's just be dead honest, if you're in this room, you're living an abundant life. Let's just be dead honest. Maybe it's so the world will look and see how you'll respond in the midst of your abundance. Maybe it's not about Isaac at all. Maybe it's about Abimelech. And his whole country is impacted in this moment. So what will people see when you navigate your life? And hey, church, let's maximize that impact by being intentional about proclaiming the excellencies of Christ in all things. Our struggles, our successes, our pains, and our wins. All of it. What will they see when you lose a loved one? What will they see when you celebrate a birthday? What will they see when you get fired? What will they see when you get a promotion? What will they see on your social media and what you wear and the way you talk and your marriage and your singleness and all the things? What will they see? And that's the question I think we should see deeply out of this passage. So believer, your abundance is just another missional tool for the presence of God. But when you got to choose between wealth or witness... Choose your witness every single time. The Word of God for the people of God. There's a lot. Thanks for hanging in there as we chew through it together. I hope that um, this passage makes sense to you. I hope that you see if you're a child of God, there's nothing you can do to thwart His presence in your life. Now, if you're not a child of God, why would you not call on Him today? Why would you not trust in Him today? Today can be the day of salvation. All right, well, all that to say, God wrote a book. (laughs) He wrote a book. And here's a good summary of all that it says. From Here's a summary of the whole book from Genesis to Revelation. Y'all ready for it? It's God saying this to His covenant children. I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living. My child, you'll be. Praise the Lord. Would you pray with me? Well, God, for the believer... We know that your presence is indeed always with us spatially, as in the world, and when you created. That's what Genesis has been teaching us, that you're in all things. But maybe out of this text today, again, qualified for the true believer in this room, God, that they'll see that your presence is also with them specially, not just spatially, Especially in a growing, loving, (laughs) thank you that you will crawl into the room in the midst of our mess and snatch us up and say, I love you, child. Not because of us, but because of Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so, Lord, we're not asking for a quote, quote, happily ever after. We're just asking that you're present with us forever and after. Well, Lord, thank you for the septic tanks that back up. (laughs) And thank you for the winds. I guess I should just be quiet, Lord. Maybe right now, even in the silence of this room, I just feel like the Lord's speaking mightily. Maybe you need to thank the Lord for the mess in your life that has caused you to look up towards Him.
Some of us need to repent for the prosperity in our lives that we have taken the glory for. Would you do that now? However this text has fallen on you, would you speak to the Lord? much to pray about so I'm going to ask you to continue to pray but to the one who has not embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior I want to talk to you real fast everything that I said today pertains to the covenant children those who have accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's, that's who that pertains to. So please don't walk out of here, unbeliever, going, yes, God's always with me, because He's not. John chapter 3 says, His wrath remains on you. Today can be the day of salvation. Today can be the day where you admit Your family cannot be your salvation. Today can be the day that you admit that your abundance cannot be your salvation. Today can be the day that you admit that your lacking has nothing to do with your salvation. Today can be the day that you admit that you are the one who is fearful and frail and you can do that today. Let today be the day of salvation. Trust in the finished work of Christ to cover your failure. And you too can be a child of the covenant blessing. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe on Christ Jesus that He was perfect and He is the righteous substitute. And commit your life to Him and today can be the day of salvation. Well, we've run out of time. But if you do that, Let us know. Let us know so that we can celebrate with you. Lord Jesus, as we worship now and respond, have your way.